0: So, I have come to think that people who provide abortion care are models of the ideal healthcare provider. In the face of a building wave of restrictions against abortion, I've seen providers move heaven and earth to get people care, staying past closing time and finding lawyers, childcare, lodging, and funding for costs. These providers persevere despite the stress of protests being stalked, and threats of violence that would make many people throw up their hands and quit. As Texas has mostly banned abortion with other states ready to follow, and as the Supreme Court prepares to take up a challenge to the very heart of Roe v. Wade, figuring out how to best serve people who need abortion care is as urgent as ever.
1: That was Jennifer Carlin reading from her first opinion essay entitled, For Abortion Care, Physicians May Need to Step Aside to Support Patients. She's a family physician and assistant professor of family and community medicine at the University of California, Davis, who recently conducted research on how providers made changes to their medication abortion protocols during the pandemic and which of those changes might be worth keeping. I'll bring you our conversation after a word from our sponsor.
2: Hi, I'm Angus McCauley, Chief Operating Officer at STAT. I'm here with Carl Hick, Chief Digital and Information Officer at Takeda Pharmaceuticals. Carl, how is Takeda using technology to create potentially life-changing treatments and vaccines? Thanks, Angus. Data and digital technologies are fundamentally changing the way that we live and we work. Here at Takeda, we see these advances as a real opportunity to drive better health outcomes through more personalized, patient-centric experiences. For example, we're exploring the expanded use of AI augmented algorithms to provide faster, personalized diagnoses for patients and to predict treatment responses. Another way we're investing in new tech here at Decade is by empowering our employees to learn new skills. Think of that as a democratization of technology in emerging areas like robotic process automation and predictive analytics. We also have identified the need for new technology talent on our team. We're hiring for data scientists, data engineers, cloud and solution architects. These are just a few of the many ways that we're working to develop our talent and use data and digital technologies to build a better future for patients. Thanks, Carl. For more information, visit Takeda.com. That's www.takeda.com.
1: Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Scarrett, editor of First Opinion, stats platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. It's great to talk with you, Jennifer.
0: It's so nice to be here, Patrick. Thanks so much for having me.
1: To set the stage for our conversation, can you please just briefly describe the two types of of abortion that are currently available?
0: Absolutely. The ways of that we think about um, abortion care is there's two main ways of accessing it. One is um, in the first trimester, you have the option for either taking medications um, or you have the option for uh, procedural abortion. So in the first trimester, what that looks like is if it's a medication abortion, you take one pill that's called mifepristone, and 24 hours later... You take four pills um, and place them either in your um, cheeks or in your vagina. And that second, those second set of pills really are what starts the cramping and expelling of the pregnancy tissue. For a procedural abortion, oftentimes, in the first trimester, it's a very simple procedure that basically is um, there's a, a small vacuum that's attached to a, um, a straw. And they use the vacuum to, um, to expel the contents in the uterus. Now, in the second trimester, there are people certainly use, um, medications for pregnancy termination. The protocols for how you take those medications change a little bit. Um, and then the procedures also are Relatively the same, except for um, sometimes you need to use other medications or other means of opening up the cervix because the pregnancy is, is further along. And so the contents that you would be removing would be much larger than in the first trimester.
1: During the first trimester, how does medication abortion compare with procedural abortion in terms of safety and effectiveness?
0: Yeah, so um, there are relatively few contraindications to medication abortion, and medication abortion is safe and effective. It is slightly less effective than a procedural abortion. So procedural abortions are about 99% effective in the first trimester, and medication abortions with the combination of mifepristone and misoprostol are um, anywhere from 96 to 97% effective um, with minimal side effects.
1: That sounds pretty good. It's,
0: it's about as good as it gets <laughs> for almost anything that we do.
1: Well, thank you for describing the medication abortion, because people often refer to, quote, the abortion pill, but it's not really an abortion pill, is it?
0: Right. So um, it's a combination of pills. And in fact... Um, the, when, when I think people say the abortion pill, they're really thinking of the mifepristone piece of it. Um, but actually there's another protocol for medication abortion that doesn't include mifepristone at all and is serial misoprostol, which is that second medication in the combination.
1: And the two, the two do different things. The mifepristone blocks progesterone, which is needed for pregnancy and the Mr. Prostol does what?
0: So the mesoprostol um, affects the prostaglandins in your uterus to cause cramping. Um, and so we actually also use mesoprostol very often um, in the obstetric setting to start a delivery of, a, of um, if we're doing an induction for any reasons in pregnancy. And so oftentimes we will give mesoprostol as a way to um, soften the cervix and also to start contractions to deliver a full term.
1: When I initially read your essay, the subtext seemed to be that as some states make it more difficult for pregnant people to get abortions, many will turn to medication abortion.
0: Well, Patrick, we actually already know that there are a lot of people um, who are turning to medication abortion, um, whether they're getting the pills um, from their physicians or getting the pills online or getting the pills from other countries, um, from from pharmacies in other countries. Um, there is a trend towards just generally people using medication abortion as opposed to procedural abortion. And so at this point, it's just about a little bit over 40 percent um, of people in the U.S. who use medication abortion. And so people do this for a variety of reasons. Of course, restrictions are one of them and that it's making knowing about this practice even more urgent, I think, for the general public. We know that people also turn to medication abortion and finding the pills for themselves because they find it to be um, empowering. Um, they find it a more natural form of menstrual regulation. And, um, and of course, it gives them a lot more autonomy and choice um, around um, the use of the medications.
1: The FDA has made it difficult it seems like to provide this kind of abortion care, it has a. It's created for mifepristone a risk evaluation and mitigation strategy, and of the twenty thousand FDA approved drugs, only sixty one. I checked this morning. Only sixty one have these kind of strategies, and it it means that um, a, a patient has to physically get the drug from the provider. And, and there are all other sorts of barriers to getting this. But it sounds like you're saying that that some people are going online getting the medication online, which I think, correct me if I'm wrong, is not legal. That's correct. So all of the online, anyone who's getting it online could really face
0: some serious trouble. And- We know that there have been some people who have been criminalized um, for um, self-sourcing and managing um, their own abortions, Um, and there's a lot of good work being done by lawyers um, from If, When, How, um, and other organizations um, to focus on the decriminalization, because oftentimes um, the criminalization that we see is of... as. Um, for people of color um, and people who, have, um, who are of low income.
1: So in, in your first opinion essay, you argue that doctors aren't needed for most medication abortions, that patients can handle them on their own. How so?
0: Yeah, so there have actually been a few studies um, across uh, like globally looking at if people are able to um, tell how far along they are in, a, in, in their pregnancy, are able to use checklists To check whether or not they meet the indications for um and the and and don't meet the contraindications for a medication. Um and as we just discussed, the medications are extremely safe and effective. Um and so you know, if people are reasonably choosing to take the medications without accessing You know, medical expertise for that. Um, Lots of people have been suggesting um, in the literature that this is safe to do. Um, We don't see a lot of negative outcomes from um, people taking medication um, on their own for this process. Um, There actually was a study done um, by Biggs et al that was a national sample looking at um, interest in alternative models of medication abortion provision um, of US uh, women. So nearly half of the people supported some form of um, easier access, whether that was advanced provision, the idea actually that your your doctor would provide you the medications before you were pregnant in case you would get pregnant over-the-counter or online access to these medications, and 30% were personally interested in one or more of those three access models. And so there are a lot of people um, across the, the country in the U.S., who actually are very interested in having access to these medications, um, and interestingly in that study, um, what they found was a history of an abortion or experiencing barriers to accessing reproductive health services were statistically significantly associated with a greater support of these alternative models. So what that tells you a little bit about is that people who have had experiences doing uh, using the medications for an abortion before that they feel very comfortable using them again because they realize how simple, effective um, and and how safe they are.
1: Is it that easy to tell how far along you are?
0: So the people. So why I said most people in um, the essay was because there are, of course, people who have irregular periods. And for those folks, people are probably is m- you know, much more difficult to tell how far along you may be if you have irregular periods. And so that's one of the things on the checklists about whether or not, um, you know, this would be a safe medication for you to take. There are obviously other people who um, do not track their periods or may not know how far along they are, and that it might not be a great choice for them. And that is one of the most important points is that um, even though people are, are are doing this for reasonable choices um, in their own lives, whether it's, um, like I said, whether it's a, a feeling of empowerment, um, whether it's wanting to be around the people that you want to be around for support, um, whether it's because you're scared of going to a clinic because of protesters or because you live in a state that makes access really difficult— No matter what the reason is that people are, are, are doing this, we need to make sure that we're supporting them in the, in the spectrum of care that they hope to get. And so making sure that we still offer clinicians to be available um, whether that's over telemedicine, whether that's in clinic, is absolutely important. And then, of course, there are always going to be the small percentage of people who get further along in their pregnancy and need to terminate for various reasons. And we still need to be training physicians and making sure that clinics are still open for those groups of people. But what I'm really trying to get across in this article is that we need to be trusting our patients to make reasonable choices in their lives. So back back to shared decision-making. <laughs> yeah, back to shared decision-making. I mean, when I think about my family practice um, uh, clinic, um, I, I practice at a federally qualified health center. And when I think about my partnerships with patients – We have patients who are managing their insulin, right? We tell them, if your sugar is about this high, then you're going to take a few more um, units of insulin, right? Like they're managing it and they're figuring it out. And we let people um, also manage their um, medications that are anticoagulants, so meaning medications that thin their blood, and that those are very dangerous medications and we give them to people and they manage it right and we have patients who are managing so many things in their lives and they know their lives better than 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 i ever will
1: you and several colleagues interviewed physicians who said the pandemic had major effects on the way that they are thinking about providing abortion what what sorts of things were they saying
0: yeah so um our whole healthcare system sort of uh, shut down for a little bit and try to reimagine itself. Um, and in and of um, lots of clinics offering telemedicine um, and other opportunities to um, have providers be available, um, places that provided abortion care started thinking through their protocols and thinking, do we really need this ultrasound uh, to let us know whether or not um, the patient's pregnancy is actually inside the uterus, uterus rather than outside the uterus or often called an ectopic pregnancy.
1: Which is a dangerous condition, isn't it?
0: It can be a life-threatening condition um, and also occurs in less than 1% um, of, the, of the population. So um, – and, and there's risk factors that make people at higher risk of having an ectopic than not. So they really started thinking through – you know do we need to be doing these lab tests do we need to be checking everyone's um, blood levels to see that they are not anemic and that they can actually handle you know some some heavy bleeding that occurs with a medication abortion do we need to be doing this and there was already evidence in um the in 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 our um there's already evidence like throughout all of our our journals um that um, we didn't need to be doing all of these um laboratory assessments and in person assessments prior to a medication abortion. Um, during the pandemic, it sort of tipped the scales, it sort of what I said is greased the wheels um, for people to start really thinking about what of this protocol is necessary and what isn't. You know, of course, there's other clinic reasons why um like medical re- legal reasons and many other reasons why those protocols were in place, but the issue about safety and the issue about efficacy, the, the evidentiary base for, um, for not needing to do all of those lab tests and, um, um, and assessments was already, um, already formed. So it really is an issue of um, change and, who is comfortable making that change? And are institutions comfortable making that change? Are um, individual providers comfortable making that change? And I really focused on sort of some of the individual providers. I had been lucky to be doing a study prior to COVID that was thinking about, uh, that was interviewing physicians um, who provide abortion about their overall perspectives um, about uh, self-source and self-managing abortion. And what happened with COVID is that I was able to check in a year later to see how their thoughts and perspectives around that had changed, and how did they change um, based on their experiences in clinic due to the COVID nineteen pandemic.
1: So, is your is your thought from this essay that physicians might sometimes need to step out of the way? Does that resonate with other clinicians or are you getting pushback? You know, are you being seen as a firebrand rebel for uh espousing something like that?
0: Yeah, you you would think so, but I guess the you know, the medical profession has moved quite some distance like I said um towards a patient-centered model. So there are a lot of physicians still and I would say there's some generational effects um of this, but there are some physicians who, you know, still um, are worried about the small, the small risks. But a lot of us, um, yo- of a younger generation have come to be trained in models where, like I said, the basis of our training is really a patient centered model. When we first started talking about, um, people who are self sourcing and self managing, there were a lot of arguments. Um, written about um approaching this from a harm reduction point of view and i think um part of um part of what i learned from interviewing the the 40 uh, abortion care providers is that um they don't think about it as harm reduction because there actually isn't that much more harm at all of self-sourcing and in some ways you are um, providing better care because for some people it is better, and they would prefer um, to uh, take the medications without having to interact with the healthcare system. Um, and so, um, you know, for abortion providers, that's why I start the way I do. It's hard, right? Because abortion providers they've they've rearranged their lives to care for for patients. And they want to be the people who are there holding someone's hand and, and helping them deal with the stigma that oftentimes abortion can bring um, to people. And um, this is hard for some abortion providers because um, they still want to be there for their patients. So a, a lot of this sounds like it's
1: a really interesting sort of patient education problem.
0: That's where I think it's at, is how do we think about public health just broadly and getting people information that they need, not just about abortion, of course, um, and abortion care, but all of these things, right? Like, I think the healthcare system in general is really thinking through what are the best ways to do that? Do we have telemedicine? Do we have educate, larger educational campaigns? Like, how do we actually get this information so that somebody could really think through, you know, am is this very risky for me? Um, or does, you know, it, it work in the context of my life and am I willing to take the risks that are incurred with this activity? Um, and so of course, if someone wants to talk that through, that's exactly what, you know, experts should be there to do for, with someone. But the idea is, do we want to force everyone to go through, um, these, uh, uh, these, these barriers in order to access care. Um, and so, uh, you know, um, there has been a big push, um, for example, in the literature led by Dan Grossman and others from ANSWER, Um, To really think about, like I'd mentioned earlier, getting these medications over the counter. Um, Mm. Because you can imagine that some of the concerns are that the medications online, how do we actually know that they are what they say?
1: That's one of the problems.
0: There was a study about that, though. So there were researchers... who basically ordered the medications, um, off of a bunch of different online sites. And then they checked to see, um, which medications they got. And by far, it was the medications as advertised. And, um, there was some, um, degradation in the misoprostol over time, but the misoprostol still had enough, um, of its, uh, ingredients, uh, In it to be able to be effective. Um, And so there is actually a website which is linked in the article called Plan C. And this is a group of people who actively look at all the websites that... that sell mifepristona misoprostol or sell misoprostol only. And they continually check that those are the medications that are actually being shipped from those um, those sources.
1: Mm, interesting. You know, the, the FDA's risk evaluation uh, and mitigation strategy, it sounds like it's in conflict with what people like the World Health Organization and the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine have said about um, medication abortion. Do you think that's going to change?
0: That's a political question. I I have a degree (laughs) in history and anthropology and not political science. Um, Yeah, you know, this is a political question. I mean, I don't know if it will change or not. I hope it does with the um, Biden administration, Um, and particularly because of the data that I – um, mentioned about the fact that, you know, there are people who supported in the U.S. support over-the-counter access to these medications. So that is is huge when you have um, a group of people who are saying that they want access to medications that the data and evidence scientifically would show um, is safe and effective and is not meeting the um, requirements, certainly for the REMs, but is almost meeting the, um, the requirements that are needed for over-the-counter medications.
1: Well, it sounds like it's taking the same trajectory as Plan B, which is long, long, long.
0: Absolutely. And that is such a good example. I talked to some of um, the people I interviewed about, um, they often brought up plan B and sort of how long it took to try to get plan B over the counter. But, you know, this, this, this happens with all forms of, um, contraceptives where the contraceptive pill is still not over the counter. Right. Um, and so the question is, is why are, why, why are we not making these medications easily accessible? Is it because we're trying to, have more control over people's bodies? Or is it because there's actually a safety issue that we're talking about? And so that's what I really wanted to get at when we were talking to the experts of the field about abortion provision. Um, did they think that this was a reasonable, safe thing to do? Um, and overwhelmingly, at The data is there. It's just a matter of both um, political will, um, but also um, self-reflection on the part of medical providers um, to really trust patients to know where they're at and make decisions in their lives that are best for them.
1: Well, let me close with a speculation question, if I can. So the trajectory of abortion care in the U.S. has been changing kind of rapidly. And if, um, you know, Texas has banned abortions after six weeks before most people even know they're pregnant. So what do you think abortion care might look like in five five or 10 years? And what do you hope it will look like?
0: Look, if Roe v. Wade is overturned, um, I think that m- most people understand that there will be um, states uh, where there will be lots of access and then places where there won't be any. And um, it will disproportionately affect low-income people and people of color. Um, And so I think you will have a lot of people figuring out how to get access in those places whether that's, um, helping to, to, I mean, I, I, you should have Carol Jaffe on who's the historian of this, who I write with also. Um, but, um, you know, I mean, it's gonna, it's, it's gonna go back to looking like what it did. I mean, my main, my main, my main concern is that people with means will always figure out to how to get, um, what, what they need. Um, and it is the concern for people who um, have to travel long distances to be able to access care, it's going to be even more impossible for them. You know, there, there'll just be states that will be sort of havens and states that there will be no access. Um, and the deserts that we already have um, will be made bigger and larger. But in terms of of... Of the ideal, you know, in talking to all of these abortion providers, it became very clear that um, um, most people see a sort of spectrum of care um, where people can um, access um, the medications in various ways. If they want to get it um, handed to them um, by someone, Um, they can if they want to get it, hopefully, you know, over the counter, they could Um, that there would be all these different um, access places, and then they would be able to also access um, healthcare providers in the ways that they want. So if that means um, a telemedicine face-to-face visit or maybe texting, um, there's various ways of getting care um, that uh, people could access. And then, of course, um, there are people who prefer procedures. Um, The medication abortions come with a lot of pain and cramping and bleeding. Um, as you get further along in the first trimester, that becomes stronger. And so um, there are lots of people who do not want to experience that, um, and they would prefer a uh, procedure. And um, there's also reasons why people um, people who are unhoused um, uh, may not have a safe place to um, go through the process of, um, having all that cramping and bleeding. Um, and then you can also imagine people who are in situations that, um, if somebody found out that they were pregnant, um, they're living in a home with someone who, um, that would be very dangerous if they Mm -hmm. knew, or if, um, you know, we, we have patients who are in abusive relationships who, um, if their partner knew they were miscarrying, their lives would be at danger. So um there are lots of reasons why people would prefer a procedure um over um medication abortion um, from both personal um safety um and and just the experience of it. Um then you know with procedures in many places in the country you can Um, get medicines that calm your nerves, you can get medicines for pain. Um, And so there's lots of reasons why people would want that. And so, you know, there should be a spectrum of care, just like every other kind of care that we provide um, in our healthcare settings to allow people to make the best decisions about what it is that they they're that about their care.
1: Well, you you would think that that's what healthcare is all about, people making the best decisions about their care.
0: I would hope so. <laughs> I would hope I would hope that um the medical profession um I think we're at a place where, you know, a lot a lot of people are really ready to partner um with their patients and try to figure out the um the the best course forward for them. Um so um Yeah, so this is not just about abortion care, but really a much larger way in which we approach um, the caregiving practice.
1: Jennifer, this has been really interesting. Thank you so much for talking with me today. And October 2026, let's make a date and find out what predictions hold for abortion care and medical care in the U.S.
0: Absolutely. Thanks so much, Patrick.
1: Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer and Rick Burke is the executive producer. I'd love to hear from listeners. Please let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And if you have a minute please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well during this strange and uncertain time.